following message was given by Robert Green on Sunday, March 3rd at Redemption Hill Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com. Uh, if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and make your way to Esther chapter 4. We're going to pick up there this morning, and, and while you're turning there, um, I'll get my clock straight so that I don't keep you too long. Um, let's play a little game to get you started. Not a game like Ray did with, you know, Family Feud or anything like that. I'm just going to, I'm going to read you something or talk to you about something and see if you're familiar with it. You ready? It's been used in commercials for every major automotive maker in America, and it's been used internationally. It's been used in commercials for companies such as Mentos, Nicorette Gum, AIG, even Monster.com used it for a Super Bowl commercial. Its lines have been borrowed by musical performers from every major genre of music, and its lines have provided episode titles for over a dozen television series, as well as lending its name to at least one video game. Over the past 40 years alone, its phrases have appeared in nearly 2,000 news stories worldwide, which yields a rate of more than once a week. Its title appears as a book title, subtitle, or chapter heading in more than 400 books by authors other than the original. And those books range in topic from political theory to the impending zombie apocalypse. Every child in America at some point in their education process has come across its lines. Scholars say on a word-for-word -word basis, it may be the most popular piece of literature ever written by an American. Do you know what it is? All right, I'll read it to you and see if you're familiar with it. Stats say you should be. Two roads diverged in a yellow wood. And sorry, I could not travel both and be one traveler long I stood and looked down one as far as I could to where it bent in the undergrowth. Then took the other as just as fair, and having perhaps the better claim because it's grassy and wanted wear. Though as for that, the passing there had warned them really about the same. And both that morning equally lay, and leaves no step had trodden black. Oh, I kept the first for another day. Yet knowing how way leads on to way, I doubted if I should ever come back. I shall be telling this with a sigh somewhere ages and ages hence. Two roads diverged in a wood, and I, I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. Familiar with it? Frost said his goal as a poet was to lodge a few poems where they will be hard to get rid of. With the road not taken, not the road less traveled, the road not taken, he appears to have wormed his way into the American conscience forever. But this poem has stood the test of time because it captures a universal experience of humanity, a crossroads, a decision, a decision in which the end isn't entirely clear no matter which way you go. Each decision holds an element of uncertainty and risk. It's a universal experience familiar to all of us. Whether you're on the playground at recess or lunchtime and you see a classmate in school being mistreated, 
Do you slip away in silence? Do you stay safe? Or do you step in and come to their aid? One path is certainly easier. You stay safe, but they keep getting mistreated. Maybe you're just happy that no one's picking on you anymore. The second path is riskier. Step in and you may risk your own reputation and your own relationships. But it's not just the problem of recess and playgrounds. One day you will make your way into the work world. And you may find yourself in a moment and in a time when you realize that your coworkers, maybe even your company, are, are acting and profiting from unethical behaviors. But guess what? You're making money. You're doing all right. You've got security. One path leads to your continual climb up a ladder, your continual profiting from the gravy train. The other, the other presents the potential of risk. The other may cost you the ladder you've been trying to climb. Protecting your self-interest, it may come at the cost of those your company is doing business with. Saying something may cost you your own reputation and profit. Two roads diverge in a wood. Frost said, I took the one less traveled by and, and it's made all the difference. As we come to Esther chapter 4, we are coming to one such crossroad in the story. We're coming to a universal experience we all are familiar with. A decision has to be made. Esther chapter 4, look at verse 1. When Mordecai had learned all that had been done, you may remember we've seen up to this point a, a work, a scheme happening where Mordecai, our, our, our man that we've met early in the story, he, he was loyal to the king. He, he helped an assassination plot against the king be foiled, and for his loyalty, he was passed over for a promotion. And his generational enemy, Haman, an Agagite, got promoted in his place. Mordecai didn't handle that very well. And for his handling of that situation, Haman is enraged, and he hatches a plot to see not only Mordecai killed, but all of Mordecai's people, the Israelites, throughout the entirety of the Persian Empire. And we saw last week that plan being, be cocked up and that, that edict be sent out throughout the entire empire where everybody was now aware that in 11 months, God's people, the Israelites, were to be exterminated from the face of the earth in Persia. When Mordecai had learned all that the people had done, all of this, He tore his clothes and he put on sackcloth and ashes and he went out in the midst of the city and he cried out with a loud and and bitter cry. This is is literally a physical gesture of of extreme grief. That's what the sackcloth and the ashes are. It's a a dramatization. It would be common not only in the, the culture of the Israelites, but in that day and time with every culture, there was some version of this kind of lament, this kind of grief, this kind of distress. But the, but the reality of it is that would normally happen after something bad had occurred. But here in the story, Mordecai is, is putting on sackcloth, lamenting, wailing, covering himself in ashes before it actually occurs. And this is signaling to us, the readers, just how doomed he felt just how imminent this threat really was to him. So verse two, he, he goes up to the entrance of the king's gate. 
No one, though, was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. Everything for the king and inside the palace, everything past that point was happy, happy, happy. No sackcloth, no ashes. All cosmetics, beauty pageants, and feasts. That's inside the palace. And we know Mordecai's going there, and he's probably going there for a couple of reasons. We can only speculate, but we can understand from the story so far. Remember, when he heard of the plot of assassination against Xerxes, he went to Esther. He got word to her so that she could go and tell the king, right? Well, here he is again going to the gates, presumably to get Esther's attention, to, to talk to her, but he can't go in. And, and where she is with the women in the palace, she, she can't come out. In every province, the writer says in verse 3, just so you can get the whole picture, in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree had reached, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting and weeping and lamenting. Many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. So it's not just Mordecai who's responding this way. Throughout the entire Persian Empire, which again, at this time, was the entire known world to them, all of God's people, or at least the majority of them, are undone in response to this edict. They heard about it, and they're mourning, and they're lamenting. And the writer is introducing this point in the story this way so that you as a reader and as a listener can begin to pick up on the contrast of what's come before. Esther is a story full of contrasts and reversals. Role reversals, situational reversals, contrast in story and context. Up to this point, it's been pageants and feasts and drinking. Now it's sackcloth and ashes and mourning. This is the context and the situation of this portion of the story. But what about Esther? God's people throughout the entire empire, they are lamenting and mourning what's to come. Or verse 4, when Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, told her that Mordecai was out of the king's gate wailing, lamenting, in sackcloth, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he wouldn't accept him. You realize she doesn't bother to find out why he's acting this way? There's no mention of trying to understand why is Mordecai showing up at the gate in sackcloth and ashes and wailing and lamenting and weeping. She just sends him clothes. Mordecai, you're embarrassing yourself. You don't get anywhere this way, Mordecai. Put these clothes on. Everyone else, every other Israelite throughout the entirety of the empire, they're wailing and mourning, but, but not Esther. She doesn't even seem to have a clue about what's going on. Why? We don't know. Was she too busy having to keep up her appearance for the king as the queen? Was no bad news like this allowed inside the palace grounds amongst the king's people? Well, it would make sense that no one would come out of concern to tell her what's going on because no one knows she's an Israelite. She's done such a good job of concealing that. Why is Esther not sorrowful, mourning, lamenting, upset about what's happening? Why does she not seem to know? Well, we're not exactly sure, but we do get a bit of a warning about the slow burn cost of compromise. Just how easy it is for you and I, much like we see with Esther here, to wind up completely distant from the concerns of God's people and the concerns of God in the world. 
so compromised with the world around us, we're no longer even aware of the concerns God has for his people and what's concerning his people. So Esther, in response, in verse 5, she, she called for Hathach, one of the king's eunuchs who had been appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. So now, because he won't take her clothes, change his clothes, and get on with business, she's trying to figure out what's wrong. Oh, now there's actually a real problem. But again, she can't go out there, and he can't come in. So she sends a middleman. And Hathach went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. And Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. Somehow Mordecai always has all the information. And here he even has a copy of the edict. Now, maybe they were distributing them. Maybe they were nailing them up on doors. I don't know. But he's got a copy of it. And based on Esther's initial response to him at the gate, he realizes she's got no clue. Maybe if she knew, she needs to know. Because if she knew, Esther, you're in the palace. You're in the place. You've got the stuff. You've got the resource. You've got the ear. You've got it. You've got to do something. Esther, look at where you are. You've got to do something. So verse 9, Hathach went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Listen to her response, verse 10. Esther spoke to Hathach and commanded him to go to Mordecai. And say to Mordecai, all the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come to the king in these 30 days. Mordecai. You know what you're asking, right? Don't you remember how I got here? Vashti was invited in and didn't come, and she's gone. The law says anyone that comes uninvited and unannounced is put to death. Do you realize, Mordecai, what you're asking? If I go in there, and let's just say I make it past the door, I make it into the threshold, I make it into his presence, and I speak, I've got to reveal who I am. Now, all of a sudden, there's a big, giant target on my back. And let's be real, Mordecai. Whatever it was five years ago that he saw, that he experienced, that made him love me more than any other young woman in the empire, it's gone. That shine has faded And I'm presumably probably doing everything that she can to keep up whatever appearance it was she has, but we already know from the last chapter he's gathering young women to the gate again anyway. Is he looking to replace me? He's not calling on me. You realize that. I don't have that with him right now. Listen, Mordecai. If there's any other way any other way 
So verse 12, they, they went and they told Mordecai what Esther had said. And then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther. Now listen to his reply. Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. All right, take that road. Be silent. Don't say anything. Don't risk it. You might keep your life a year from now. You might keep it two years from now. But a day is going to come when the connection is going to be made. And do not be deceived that just because right now you're the queen, it's going to go any different for you inside that palace when they realize it. Verse 14, for if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. Ultimately, that road, Esther, being silent, saving yourself, it's no safer. Deliverance is going to come from somewhere. Now, the writer is being deliberately vague right here. We, we don't get any indication directly right here from the writer as to why Mordecai says this, but we'll, we'll get to that in a minute. And then you get the phrase that everyone knows. Yeah, everyone who's familiar with Esther, the story always starts right here. Esther 4.14 is the beginning of the story for most people's familiarity. Here's his third line of reasoning. And who knows whether or not you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. The phrase that has launched 10,000 posters and t-shirts, been used in locker room speeches, boardroom speeches, and it has to have been used more than Frost's poem ever could imagine being used. Everyone's familiar with this. But here's the thing. Going back to the story, Esther is at a crossroads. She has a choice to make. It is the divergence of paths that she has been trying to avoid the entirety of her life. Is she Hadassah or is she Esther? Does she retreat and save herself and allow the certainty of her own people to be slaughtered? Or does she risk her own life and maybe or maybe not change the king's mind? She has to do something. No more passivity. No more path of least resistance. What's she going to do? You realize it, for the majority of us, we face crossroads like this in a similar way to Esther here, even though the, the scale may be a, diff, a bit different. The decision, the choice, is always born out of a sense of identity. She's facing an identity crisis here. She has the position. She's in the palace. She's the queen. She's got the resources. She has a particular way of living in front of her. She's somebody. Will that be what shapes her decision? What's she going to do? Verse 15. Esther told them to reply to Mordecai. Go gather all of the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, 
I perish. Friends, that is a tremendous statement of conviction and courage. Another reversal has taken place in the story. Another another contrast has taken place in the story. Do you realize so far in the story, this is the first time that Esther speaks? And now she speaks and she's telling people what to do. Now she speaks and she's acting. This moment of distress, this moment of crisis, it has become her defining moment of conviction. There is a sense in which she is making a decision. She's choosing the road in front of her. And in her choosing the road in front of her, what she is saying is my treasure, the palace, the role, the resource, my treasures are no longer my treasure. I am willing to lose my life because something else has become more important to me. You realize when when the palace, when your position, when your place, your resource, your power, your opportunity, all those things, when those things are your treasure, do you realize that all anyone has to do to control you is threaten them? When your beauty, when your wealth, when your opportunity, when your job, when your career, when whatever it is, when that is your treasure, all that has to happen for you to be controlled is for those things to be threatened. Something, better yet, someone has set Esther free. Esther is living free here. The palace The empire and all of its demands and expectations have been dethroned in her heart. Because of that, she can take the road less traveled with courage and conviction. And here's the question. What is it that cultivates this kind of courage, this kind of conviction? What is it that gives rise to this kind of freedom? Where does it come from? The writer isn't explicit in this story at all. But by the sovereign inspiration of God, this is one of the most beautifully written stories you're ever going to come across. Esther chapter 4, verse 3. So well written. In every province, wherever the king's command and his decree is reached, there was great mourning among the Jews. And what does it say right after that? With fasting and weeping and lamenting. Some of your translations will say mourning right there, right? All over the pages of the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, you'll find reference to fasting and weeping and lamenting or mourning. But this particular construction of language is only used in one other place in the entire Bible. One. It's in Joel chapter 2. And when you read the Bible, whenever a biblical writer directly or indirectly quotes or alludes to another part of the Bible, whether it's an allusion or a direct quotation, whether it's direct or indirect, there's the intention in the mind of the writer who's choosing to quote or allude to something already written because they intend for you to take the context of the original and somehow lay it over the context of what they're writing to get a better understanding of what they're trying to communicate. It's the Bible interpreting the rest of the Bible. 
In some sense, it's like a conversation happening between these two authors and writers, and the echoes of what's being quoted are meant to impact the understanding of what's being written. And so if the writer of Esther is intentionally directly quoting something that has come before him through the prophet Joel, then he would assume that those who would read and hear what he's writing here in Esther would be familiar with what was in Joel chapter 2 and so understand what they're reading in Esther 4 in light of this in Joel chapter 2. Well, you already know what Joel chapter 2 says, right? Here, I'll read it to you just to catch you up. Joel chapter 2, verses 12 through 14. God's people were facing the imminent threat of danger at the hand of God for their disobedience. Joel chapter 2, verse 12 says this, Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all of your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning or lamenting, same word. Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. Who knows? He may turn and have pity and leave behind a blessing. You see, the interplay, the the echo, so to speak, of, of Joel 2 here in Esther 4 suggests that Mordecai and the Israelites, in responding to the impending destruction, they respond to it as an opportunity, possibly, to turn to the Lord in repentance, to the one who may act. Remember, these were the Israelites who did not obey God and go back to Jerusalem when Cyrus began to send them back to rebuild the city and rebuild the temple. These were the ones who chose compromise in Persia, who chose the road, the path of least resistance. Could it be that the author of Esther is saying to us and directly quoting Joel chapter 2, verses 12 through 4, that little phrase right there, could it be that he's saying that the response of Mordecai and the Israelites, and even what we see here in Esther, is the repentance called for by God through Joel. I think so. I think so. We don't get the details on how it happened. We don't get the details on, on what had occurred. But I believe the faithfulness of God, the covenant nature of God, the promises of God to his people became alive in this moment of crisis to Mordecai and to Esther. And Esther now demonstrates a genuine faith in God, a genuine faith which is always the result of real repentance, a real recognition of the faithfulness of God and the sovereignty of God in her life for his people. Friends, genuine faith is an internal conviction that always leads to an external action. Genuine faith is is not just a collection of right ideas and right knowledge. It's not just what you believe. Genuine faith is always reflected in how you behave. And as you read this story, realize when Esther faced this diversion of paths, when she had to make this choice, She didn't have an audible voice from God telling her how it was going to work out. She didn't have a burning bush telling her that God was calling her to such a time as this. She didn't have a prophet coming to her telling her, thus saith the Lord. She didn't have many of the things that God's people had grown so accustomed to throughout his work of redemption in their life up to this point. 
But the faithfulness of God and the commitment of God to his people for his glory, it had become real to Esther and Mordecai and many of God's people at this point. And Esther was in a position to now put her faith into action, to publicly identify with God and if necessary, lay down her life. Because here's the thing, whether or not her life was spared or her life was taken, God would be glorified through her obedience regardless of the outcome. And the same thing holds true for you and I. One writer said, God may heal our diseases. He may transform our breaking marriages. He may plant thriving ministries through us. Or he may sustain us in obedient submission to him as our earthly hopes are dashed. As our lives are poured out for apparently little purpose. Either way, we have the guarantee that he will use even our faint faith as the means of bringing glory to himself. With this assurance, we can add to Esther's cry, if I perish, I perish. Simply let me perish in a way that brings glory to God. Friends, I'm not going to tell you that when you do what brings glory to God, what is right in his eyes, when two paths are facing you, that it's all going to work out okay. You can read the rest of the Bible. You can read the stories of those who walked with Jesus day in and day out for three years. They ended up hung upside down on a cross, beheaded, boiled in oil, and isolated on an island for the rest of their life. And maybe you're not familiar with how the story of Esther ultimately ends. Well, let me tell you, Xerxes doesn't get saved. He doesn't go to Bible school. He doesn't plant a church. Esther doesn't run the women's ministry. They don't have seven kids. They know four languages. They go be missionaries in China. It's not how it works. It's not what's going to happen. But here's what astounds me, where we are in the story. Esther does what she does with a far more fuzzy understanding of God's sovereign grace than you and I have. Esther didn't know that God was actually going to come to the earth and do exactly what she was doing, yet with an infinitely greater scale, with an infinitely greater cost to himself and an infinitely greater benefit to us. And I'm left having to deal with the fact that if, if she did what she did, knowing what she knew about God, and you and I on this side of the cross know so much more, so much more about his sovereign faithfulness, so much more about our value in his eyes because of his son, so much more about his grace. When two roads diverge in front of me, what's, what's my excuse for taking the path of least resistance? I don't know that I actually have one. You know, we get to this point in the story and we read Mordecai trying to implore Esther. You got to go to the king. And we hear her reluctance at first. You, you don't get what you're asking me. And in our minds, we're going, no, you got to do it. You, you, you've got to go intercede for your people in front of the king. In God's kindness and in God's grace, 
In the 21st century, we're still reading this story, imploring this kind of action. Because as we read it, God still intends for our hearts to go, you've got to go do this. <gasps> oh. Huh. Hold, hold, hold on. How much more so do I need someone to step in and intercede on my behalf with God? The sovereign king of, with whom I have rebelled against with my whole heart from birth. Friends, we, we sinful people could no more stroll up into the presence of a holy and righteous and just God and expect anything else other than judgment. And as we've already seen, we've seen it over and over in the story. We've read it, we've read it throughout the storyline of redemption. God has declared that the wages for our sin and rebellion is indeed death. And we've read it because that message has been sent throughout the entirety of the world. We read Esther chapter four and implore her to act, to step in, to intercede, because inside our hearts, that's our cry. Someone's got to intercede. Who's going to intercede for us? Who's going to step in? Who's going to plead our case? Friends, this is what makes singing songs like what a friend we have in Jesus, so joyful and glorious. As one writer said, in the fullness of time, Jesus came and took on flesh and appeared in this world. Far from being comfortably isolated from his community as Esther was, Jesus identified with us fully. He took on the form of a servant and lived as one of us in this, <clears throat> in this fallen and sin-sick world. And then after he completed his life of perfect obedience, he, he went in before the Father knowing that he was not just risking his life, but laying it down. For him, if I perish, I perish, meant not just the potential and probability of death, but the absolute certainty of the cross. It was not just a swift blow from an ax that he faced, but the full torment of hell. It was no light burden. The sweat fell like drops of rain from his brow in Gethsemane as he faced up to his greater encounter with death. That night that Jesus would be betrayed, while he was in the garden, two roads diverged in front of him. One led to the possibility of him saving his own life. And the cost of that was the certain eternal death of his people. The other road, it led to his certain death. But in the sovereign grace of God, the salvation and deliverance of his people. And there in that garden, the two roads diverging in front of him, he cried out in agony, if there's any other way. Father, if you can let this cup pass, if there's any other way, but there was no other way, there was no other way that our sin could be judged and we could be saved. And so he drank the cup of God's wrath in our place for our sin. He didn't take on his body sackcloth and ash. He took upon his body that night the splintery wood of a Roman cross 
and the cold steel of spikes in his hand so that through his certain death, you and I, by the grace of God, might have life. Even now, having been raised from the dead three days later, Jesus is interceding for us, his people, before the Father. Friends, this is the thing. This is what makes all the difference in the world in how you and I see and then respond to the crossroads in our life. This makes all the difference in the world in how you and I see and interpret and respond to the diverging roads that we're faced with throughout the entirety of our life on this earth. Because of Jesus, the way that you and I can see them and respond to them has been forever changed. See, the more we see Jesus, the more our hearts are grasped by him, being willing to lose his life, lose it all, set aside his glory to come to live for us ungrateful, sinful people, to give it all up for us. The more we see him, the more our joy rises in him, the more we see his grace spread out to us who don't deserve it in any way, shape, form, or fashion, the more we enjoy it. The more we see him, even now, interceding on our behalf in front of the Father, the more we continue to see and the joy rises up in our hearts with the reality that he has given us his very spirit, the spirit that raised him from the dead, that is alive and at work, changing the desires of our hearts, empowering us to take the road to the glory of God. The more we see him, the more we enjoy him, the more we'll be able to reflect that joy in the decisions that we make and the roads that we take, the roads far less traveled than the ones our world will often want us to take. The more we see him, the more we can enjoy him. The more we can enjoy him, the more we can display him. And who knows, maybe out there on the playground, the next time that classmate is being mistreated, and you've turned your head a hundred times before, you've been so grateful before that at least it's not you. Maybe the next time in the office, while dishonoring practices are being hatched, while maybe some shady gain is being taken, and you've enjoyed the benefits for years now, you stepped right on those heads to climb that ladder, and you got the car in the house to prove it maybe across from the table. After hurtful words have been spoken for years, maybe missed expectations and, and disappointments have accrued for years, and there's been no movement towards repentance, maybe across that table this week or next week. Who knows? Maybe you've been brought to that exact place for such a time that God might be glorified through you. Friends, the good news of his covenant is that he never leaves. He never forsakes. And he is always at work for his highest glory 
and your greatest good. May he, by his spirit, work a deep delight in your heart, in him and his grace. That when you are next faced with two roads that diverge right in front of you, you, not by the strength of your will, not by the sweat of your brow, not by the grit of your determination, but by your joy in the one who has saved you and loved you, you can take the road less traveled. And for his glory and your joy, you can watch and see that it makes all the difference. Friends, I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to give you a couple of minutes to reflect on his word and allow his spirit to continue to do his work in your heart. And then for those of us who have tasted of his grace and goodness, repented of our sins, have turned to Jesus, even with the smallest of faith for salvation and for transformation, we are going to celebrate his sacrifice in our place for our sin by receiving communion together, publicly demonstrating our confidence in him and proclaiming with our bodies, demonstrating with our bodies in receiving communion, our confidence in his his faithfulness towards us. We're going to sing, we're going to celebrate, we're going to be sent out from here as his people. So let me pray for you, and then we'll give you a couple of minutes to reflect. Father, we thank you this morning for the continued reminders, even in stories like Esther, where it seems so hard to see, so hard to see you, so hard to see your work, so hard to see your faithfulness. It's so much like our life. And we thank you that you remind us that You don't leave us or forsake us. But by your spirit, you continue to work in us and through us for your highest glory, for our deepest joy. Lord, we need you to do the work in our hearts to to bring us to a place of continued confidence and faith and joy in you. We ask that you would do this in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a message by Robert Green given at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information on the church and to hear other messages, please visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com.